the beginning of every year so far, we've done like a, a vision series just to kind of refresh our memory. Why did we plant a church? What's the purpose of the church? What are were our distinctives as a church? Um, what are we trying to do here? Uh, and so uh, this year, it's our, our series is called A Faithful Witness because I feel feel the need to really kind of re, you know, rethink through and reestablish how is it that we are going to maintain uh, a faithful biblical Christian witness in the midst of all the crazy that's going on all around us. Uh, and it's, listen, it, we exist in the bubble of the culture and it's real easy to get caught up in error on one side and it's easy to get caught up in error on the other side. Uh, and yet there is a clear uh, biblical mandate, description, vision for how we as the church are to be witnesses in the world, how we're to be light and salt in the world, how we are to be uh, uh, witnesses of Jesus' beauty and light, that, that Jesus is, is better and uh, more beautiful than anything else the world has to offer. And so today we're going to look at at Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This is like ground zero passage for mission and for evangelism. And we've preached this. I preached this at least once, maybe twice. Um, but as we all know, you know, Jesus didn't, in this passage, we always, there's the, the joke is, you know, or the, the proverb is that Jesus, you know, didn't command us to just go and preach the gospel. He, he, he commanded us to go and make disciples of all the nations, of which preaching the gospel is obviously a huge part. But this passage says a lot more than just our preaching the gospel. And the more I go along after five years of, seven years of church planning, after 14 years of Christian ministry, this passage gets deeper and deeper every time I revisit it. And so that's what I want to do today. It's like, look at it again uh, and see if we can see how it might point out to us any areas that we can grow uh, and better understand what the mission is for us. And so, with that, I would like everyone, if you would please stand, if you are able, out of respect uh, for the reading of God's word. This is God's inerrant word. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the mission you've given us. Lord, we thank you for the spirit that empowers that mission. We thank you for Jesus who is ruling over the cosmos, making that mission a sure and certain thing. We thank you that you have told us that we belong to that new kingdom already and that our role in it is not to strive uh, after, after something in our own power or to strive after something that may or may not happen. It is to stand in you and in your power, to stand as faithful witnesses in a world, uh, no matter how hostile, no matter how friendly, <laughs> according to your word and your word alone, as citizens of your kingdom, first and foremost. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see all those things, the beauty of what Jesus has done for us, and the totality of the comprehensive program of restoration, 
uh, of reconciliation of the cosmos that Jesus is undertaking and will complete. So Lord, give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you beautify us, your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I don't know about you, but I love the comment section of any post almost better than the post, especially if it's, you know, especially if it's contentious or a little bit controversial, right? I love to go into the comments and just watch people battle it out. I can't do it anymore, you know. <laughs> Since I became a pastor, Nisa like shut me down. She was like, no more baiting people into arguments on the internet, which praise God, praise God for wise women, <laughs> wise wives uh, that, that keep us out of trouble. But uh, we, uh, I, the, one of the comment sections that I am always entertained by is the comment sections of the Gospel Coalition on Facebook. We support them as a ministry because uh, we believe that they, they are producing, their content is a good balance of, 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 of gospel-centered, uh, biblical teaching on, on the important doctrines of the faith, what it means to be saved, how one is saved, uh, but also they, they don't just do that, they also present articles about our obligation to, uh, because of what God has done for us and how we can express our gratitude and love in service to the world and, and in love for one another. And so, uh, here's the thing, every time they do something like that, every time they post one of those posts, there's almost an immediate uproar, right? The people, people jump in and accuse them of apostasy, accuse them of, oh, Marxism, of being secret, uh, critical race theorists, uh, being crypto-Catholics. Uh, I, mean, I mean, you can just go on and on and on. Recently, a guy, they put a great post up about Gosh, I can't remember what it was, but it was just a, a post about solid biblical doctrine. And this one guy, this one guy, as in, in high, you know, using hyperbole and and, uh, and satire, he's like, he's like, this is an article. This is a secret critical race theory article. If you look super close, you can see it. Kind of calling out all the people that accuse him of everything under the sun. One particularly angry commenter. Uh, when she was uh, accusing the gospel coalition of, of not believing in the gospel, it was asked, what do you, what could you tell us? Please enlighten us. What is the gospel? And uh, she then answered with a textbook perfect uh, explanation of the doctrine of justification, which is that we are declared righteous by God based on our faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ, right? That we are justified by the external work of Christ and not by anything that we do on our own. And so, so far so good, right? But what she was implying was that that was it. There was nothing else that could be said in or about or in the context of the gospel, either the fruit of it uh, or the, the comprehensive nature of it or anything. It was just that and nothing else. And is that true? That's what I want to explore today, really. The core of what I want to explore today is, is that true? Is the doctrine of justification as important, as central? I'm going to like be like clarifying what I say with all these like caveats throughout the sermon here so, you, so no one like, uh, so, so, so no one bum rushes me off the pulpit, right? <laughs> 
as central to the Christian faith as it is as uh, you know the the most you know important doctrine as far as heaven and hell is that all that gospel coalition or a Christian institution or a church can speak about and still be gospel centered because that seems to be the prevailing wisdom. And so today I want to take a look at this passage of uh, Matthew 28. This is, again, ground zero for Christian mission, for Christian evangelism. And often we think of this passage to sin. We think, go and preach the gospel, i.e. go and preach justification. But it's really so much more than that. And I want to look at some of these main commands again with fresh eyes and see if we can't see that there's more to it. See if it doesn't challenge us in certain ways, okay? So we're going to look at three things. Go, teach, and then the end of the age. Go, teach, and the end of the age. So let's start, let's start with go. The first and the central command from Jesus in this passage is go. Uh, and go doesn't mean pass through. Uh, go means usually, it means to go and to enmesh ourselves in that culture, in that people group, in that time and place that God has called us to be a witness to. Uh, so listen what it says. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. What do you think, what do you think of when, you, when, when we hear that, when you hear go? Maybe you think about what I call drive-by evangelism. This is kind of like a pet peeve of mine. Like the worst, I'm going, to be, I'm going to try to be charitable. The most obvious example is bullhorn evangelism where you park up on the street with your big lighted signs and you yell it, you know, you shout at people through the bullhorn as they pass by in their car uh, or something like that. We used to, or, you know, other subtler forms of it. We, we used to know this guy named Mark at our old church. We called him the sniper. <laughs> We called him the sniper because when we would in, we would invite people to come to church, right? And <laughs> without fail, within five minutes, this guy had him pinned against the back wall trying to get him to say the sinner's prayer, right? <laughs> and he was just like stoked about it. He like had a, you know, notches in his belt. And, uh, but for him, it was just all about getting people to say that prayer. Not about, there was no part of it about building a relationship with that person, building trust, listening to what they had to say, and earning like the relational capital so that we could speak about deep and meaningful things and be heard. And I think, I'm convinced that as we go more and more into an anti-Christian culture, that is a necessary component of evangelism, right? And so we had, you know, Mark the Sniper. <laughs> Any kind of evangelism that's hit and run like that, with no relationship kind of falls under that category of uh, drive-by evangelism. But on the other hand, some people think go necessarily means you, you have to leave everything behind, quit your job, uh, leave your student loans unpaid, and fly to some foreign country and, and post up and, and do mission in some foreign country. And there are Christian missions that, that, that emotionally manipulate people into believing that that is the only valid Christian life, is to pick up, leave everything behind, and go off to a foreign country. Uh, and, and for some, that's the call, right? I mean, we, our mission in North America, PCA's foreign mission wings, 
They have a goal for people, for churches, to tithe 10% of their members to foreign missions. Man, I think that's a great goal and a great idea. But still, that's only some of us, not all of us. For the most, most of us, most of us, we're going to fall in the middle somewhere, right? Most of us, and for most people that we see in the Bible and the New Testament, go really means to reach the people in our lives who don't know God right where we are, right here, right now. And so that means that most of the time, the lines that we have to cross, the barriers that we have to cross are ideological barriers rather than geographical barriers. And that's harder to do. Sniping is a lot easier than crossing, than taking the time to cross these ideological barriers, deception that people live under, uh, and to be engaged with people who believe very differently and live very differently than we do. That's hard. So how do we do it? Well, the control verse in the Old Testament comes out of Jeremiah chapter 29. Where God's people had been, had been sent into exile out of the land of Judah, out of Jerusalem. And God had taken them into the land of Babylon. And the prophets, a lot of their prophets were saying, keep your bags packed. Any day now, God's going to send us back to Jerusalem. And God sent Jeremiah to say, no, you're going to be here a minute, i.e. 70 years. So he encourages them to engage, to, to buy houses, to marry and be married, to engage in the culture. Uh, and then he says, he says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now, why is that? Why is that passage from the Old Testament about us? Because the apostles, the New Testament writers call us exiles, sojourners uh, in the world. We are very much likened to people who are in the, the dispersion, who are exiles in the world. We belong to this kingdom of God in heaven and we are here as aliens and sojourners, right? That's the model for us. And the word well-being is the word shalom, which means a lot more than just peace. It means uh, peace, but it means security. It means like whole being, wellness, and prosperity. And this is calling us to be people who are known in the broader culture as people who are known for sacrificial love, for investment in the good of the community, and an investment in the good of our neighbors. <clears throat> now I get it. I mean, the gospel is offensive. There's things that we believe that are offensive to people, and sometimes people are going to uh, push back against that. But as far as it depends on us, we should be known as people who are like that. That's what it's saying. You know, Jesus says essentially the same thing in John 17, Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, the passage that we talked about last week, 1 Peter 3, really talking about being ready to give an answer, a kind and gentle answer, is really all calls to our mesh ourselves in the world where we're at, and be part of that world uh, and serve the people there. There's so much so that there's a you know Christian proverb to be in the world but not of it. How many of you know how many of you know that's not an actual Bible verse? It's kind of a conglomeration 
of, of several Bible verses that put together, that's what it means. We're called to be in the world, meaning engaged with it, but not of it, not practicing the things the world practices, but instead standing in, a, in contrast as light in the world, not as judges keeping the stench of the world at arm's length, but as neighbors and friends getting right into the middle of it. I've got two friends, <clears throat> and I had similar conversations with them that was uh, fairly quickly. That was, uh, so I was able to contrast them. One friend, he uh, worked for a small family business, and this family employed him, and family was Christian. And he kind of offhandedly remarked to me, man, I'm so, you know, so, I love my job. I love the people I work for. I can't even imagine working for a non-Christian family. Like that was just beyond even reasonable to think that anyone would be required to do that or anyone would even want to do that. And I was like, wow, I think, wouldn't it be the other way around? Wouldn't she like want to be working for a non-Christian family so that, you know, maybe you'd pray that God would place you in that situation so that you could be a light? Uh, and then not soon after, I had another friend who was talking to a friend of his about how it is that he could stay here in Southern California. How could he possibly, how could he, how, how could he stand being here in Southern California, <clears throat> in San Diego, with all the craziness, with all the restrictions, with all the bizarre things that we have to deal with? And let's be honest, there's some bizarre things we have to deal with. And his response was totally different. He was like, I can't imagine being anywhere else except maybe San Francisco, maybe Seattle, uh, maybe Berkeley, I don't know. But I can't imagine being anywhere else than here because this is where the action is. I think that's what this is getting at. That's what I mean when I'm trying to say, when we say go, it means to go into the culture and be that light where the action is and be praying that God would use us to bring the light of the gospel to so how do we get that attitude? How do we get that attitude? Second point is, is the teaching part here, right? Jesus goes on saying, make you know, disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's God's sign that marks us out as being part of his covenant, part of his kingdom. Uh, but then he says what? What he says? He says teaching. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, that's a, that's a heavy statement too. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That kind of rules out, totally rules out drive-by evangelism, right? And puts a big responsibility on us. Uh, one of our, our, the former president of our, of our seminary, he used to say, it was kind of a joke, but there was truth to it. He used to say that, you know, when talking with the broader evangelical church, who he, he believed in, and I think there's truth to this, the broader American church is engaged in a program of what he called theological minimalism, meaning that what we're trying to do is figure out like the bare necessity that we need to, what we need to agree upon to be Christian and then kind of leave everything else people's individual interpretation. And there's some value to that in some ways, right? Because it helps you get along with people. But the, the problem is there, there's these big gaps between what the church teaches and everybody just fills those gaps in 
with their own, you know, subjective ideas that they pull out of, out of, out of the Bible. And so his joke was, he's like, when you're, you know, when you're speaking to people in the broader evangelical world, you know, you can say, hey, well, at least we're doing our best to teach all that Jesus commanded. I mean, even if we can get a little crazy about that sometimes, at least we can say we're trying to, we are in a real way trying to fulfill that, right? There's some realness to that. Uh, and there's some realness to the charge that he was making, right? I, for example, I used to, my first role really in ministry was I ran an altar call ministry at a giant megachurch. An altar call for you Presbyterians uh, who you don't know is, is uh, uh, that at the end of a sermon, the preacher will give a, an invitation to accept Jesus, kind of like Mark the Sniper, but usually it's tied in with the sermon itself and invites everyone to come up front and say the sinner's prayer and, and invite Jesus to come into your heart, right? I used to be in charge of this whole complex of, of, of doing this at the church every week. I had, uh, my ministry was twice as big as Resprez is now at this massive church, right? And let me tell you something. It was exciting. Can you, I mean, this uh, 100 people a weekend would come down the aisle and dedicate their lives to Jesus. 100 people, minimum. Sometimes we had 100 people per service. And man, there is nothing more exciting than watching I think like the lifeblood of any church is watching the spirit bring new people to life. And if your church is missing that, uh, you're just like bleeding to death and you don't even know it. But there is so, that, is, that was so exciting. It was in fact so exciting that it ended up overshadowing every other thing about the Christian life. Uh, to where... Everything we did was geared towards that one thing. The worship service, uh, you know, our, our interaction, everything we, everything we did was geared towards that one move of getting someone to walk down the aisle and say the sinner's prayer, right? And so there's real, there's real criticism against that, you know? I have, I've like second really thought that through again, and I don't think that's the best practice now. You know, it was still super exciting and fun. And, but at the end of the day, there's real criticisms to be made about that because it created or tended to create shallow Christians and shallow churches who knew next to nothing about the faith. And that was bad for, those, for the people, right? That was bad for the people. Uh, we, on the other hand... We pride ourselves in being a gospel-centered church. And for good reason. As I said, now here's, let me put some more caveats on this before I get into the next part. Uh, the gospel is the central doctrine of the Christian faith. That is the most important thing that we have. Our mandate, our call from Jesus as the church is to go out into the world and proclaim the gospel and then teach people all that Jesus has commanded us, right? So it is absolutely central to the faith. Uh, and being a gospel-centered church is a great thing and a necessary thing. But are we? That's the question I want to I want to I want to explore. Are we? Are we a gospel-centered church? What does the gospel mean? 
If you ask any theologian or pastor, they usually were going to direct you to the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says this, that I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Of first importance. Let's not miss that. This is the most important thing. Uh, he, uh, uh, that first, that, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus died on the cross and took our judgment for sin upon himself so that our sins were wiped clean. He gave us his perfect righteousness, credited it to us. Uh, and in that exchange, uh, our sins are, are given to Jesus. Jesus gives us his righteousness. And because of that, God declares us to be righteous and just before him based solely on what Jesus did. That is of first importance in the Christian life, right? Let's not make that a mistake. Let's not mistake that. But also, then he talks about the resurrection. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, you know, the Bible says that Christ was raised for our justification. He was the guarantee. Uh, he was the guarantee that his sacrifice was accepted by God in that resurrection. And his resurrection was the guarantee that we too would be resurrected into new life, into a new creation. But his resurrection was also something else. It was the beginning of the new creation. The Bible, New Testament, talks about Jesus being the firstborn of the new creation. That doesn't mean that he was the first created being whom God then created all other things. It means that Jesus was the beginning, the resurrected Jesus was the very beginning of an entirely new creation, which means that new creation started 2,000 years ago and is happening now. Uh, and so... It means that we, when we come to Jesus, when God gives us that new heart, when we're brought into union with Christ and brought into the family of God, we are brought into the new creation. And that starts now. It's not something that happens sometime in the future. That gospel passage that we read, when Paul, Paul, Paul says, uh, he is a new creation. It doesn't, it just says new creation. It's like this abrupt, em emphatic new creation now. And this perfectly reflects the New Testament description of the gospel. There is both a broad sense of what the gospel is, and there's a narrow sense of what the gospel is. Uh, the narrow sense is our justification, that Christ died for our sins, and that we're made righteous by what Jesus did for us. We're declared righteous, justified by faith in Jesus' works, period. Well, there's a broad application of the gospel, too, where the gospel is talked about as Jesus' program of comprehensively restoring the entire cosmos and bringing all things into reconciliation to God. That's a massive, a massive program. Uh, Jesus is restoring the cosmos and making, he's turning it into a 
whole new creation where his people will dwell in security and peace and righteousness. That our future is more indescribably wonderful than our imaginations even have the power to conjure up. So that the fruit of our sanctification is God frees us not from just the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. Is part of that the, our, our hope of glorification where God is going to free us from the very presence of sin. Is part of that the fruit of reconciliation to God and to each other and to creation is part of that. All of it, all of our lives is, is to be lived in the here and now unfolding of the power of this new creation that God is creating, that he will bring to ultimate fulfillment when Jesus returns, right? Now, before I get into too much trouble here, let me bring in some guns, some big guns to back me up, right? This is, again, Robert Godfrey. Impeccable reformed credentials, okay? Uh, so here he says, he says, the church needs to preach the gospel in both its broad and narrow senses. The Greek word for gospel has given the English-speaking world the word evangelism. True evangelism, according to the Great Commission given by Jesus in Matthew 28, 18-20, is a matter of making disciples. First, in the narrow sense of calling men and women to believe in Jesus, and second, in the broad sense of teaching them to observe all things that Jesus has taught his people for the sake of the gospel, let's all promote true evangelism. And here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid we don't do that very well. I have this fear and sneaking suspicion as I think about this more and more that over the course of the 20th century, in the battle for the gospel, as the, as the evangelical church, as the true church battled against the forces of evil over the doctrine of justification, over what it means to be saved, over how someone is saved, uh, that we got so hyper-focused on the narrow version of justification, or the narrow version of the gospel, justification, that it overshadowed everything else. So that a lot of times when we say that we're a gospel-centered church, what we really mean is we're a justification-centered church. Now there's a, I mean, we, we preach Christ-centered sermons. And for good reason, right? Uh, the litmus test of a good, one litmus test of a good sermon is that if your sermon could be preached in any mosque or synagogue, it's not a Christ-centered sermon, right? And, and that's, a, that's something to think about, right? You would never want to do that. We would always want Jesus to be at the center of our sermons. However, whenever that's employed almost always, it means uh, to, to center the sermon on, on justification, and justification alone. So that if you center a sermon on Christ's work uh, in, in, in restoring the cosmos and his work in restoring us, uh, it's almost frowned upon because that's not, that's not the gospel. But it is the gospel. 
And I worry that we're producing in the same way that we used to produce Christians uh, in altar call ministry who were very shallow in their understanding of the faith. It makes me worried and wonder whether or not we're producing Christians in churches who have their soteriological theology on point, meaning they've got their salvation theology on point, but they know next to nothing about going out into the world and living as part of the new creation. You don't think about this stuff as a seminary student. <clears throat> you only think about it when you become a pastor of a church and people who you love, lives, begin to cave in on them. And you got to jump in and help. I have a friend of mine I went to school with, uh, went and planted a church in South Carolina, came out here for a vacation, was literally crying over lunch. Crying over lunch because he said, he told me this, this is the most awful story you could ever hear about a mother uh, and, and finding her, you know, her son in, engaged in, in something. And he was just crying over the fact that he didn't know how to minister to her. He didn't know, he, he didn't know how to comfort her. He didn't know how to teach her how to live according to all that Jesus commanded. He could tell, he could go all day long about the w imputation of Jesus, uh, you know, of Jesus, uh, about the doctrine of justification, about its separation from sanctification, yet connected about glorification. And those are good things. Don't, don't, I am not speaking badly about those. Those are the central things of the gospel. But he was lamenting that his people didn't know how to live. And I see it. I see it. Why do I think that? How do I see it? Now, granted, let's be fair, there's a whole swath of the church that has lost the gospel, lost the doctrine of, just, uh, lost the doctrine of justification uh, to the point where they don't even have the gospel anymore at all, and that causes all kinds of problems. The gospel becomes just justice in the world, where the gospel becomes other things that it's not, that becomes not, and it becomes a gospel that does not save. That's a real thing. However... There's also huge swaths of the evangelical church when presented with perfectly biblical ideals of justice, just automatically shut it down as cultural Marxism or some other thing. Why? Maybe it's because we just don't even have the categories of biblical justice anymore because we've been hyper-focused. There are huge swaths of the church so steeped in political idolatry that they literally can no longer distinguish between the kingdom of God and the United States of America. Why? Because somewhere along the line, they were not taught all that Christ has commanded us. So how do we get back to the all? How do we, what's our motivation for getting back to the all? You know, last point, as we talked about last week, uh, the only way to overcome a, f you know, a fear-based life is to live a promise-focused or promise-based life. And the way to think about the all is to think about the age to come. And that's the third point, to think about the age to come 
meaning that this age is temporary and we are called to live as if we already belong to the next because we do, because that's true. I had one of my first mentors <clears throat> when I was at that giant megachurch, one of the pastors at that church. Uh, you know, I was in Bible college. I really wanted to be in ministry. I wanted to be in full-time ministry so bad I couldn't stand it. <laughs> I could just, I couldn't, I could taste it, you know, and I was painting cars and I just wanted to dump that and I just wanted to be in full-time ministry so bad. And my, the pastor said to me, he's like, look, if you want to be a pastor, you, the time is not to wait. You don't wait until you have the degree. You don't wait until, uh, you know, you're ordained. You start, you start acting in that role now. You start acting as if and, be, and start becoming a pastor right now if you feel God's call on you on your life like that, right? Uh, and that's like, and so I did. And that's a, you know, the, the prevailing wisdom is also, that prevailing wisdom is in productivity culture, right? You're called to, to begin to act as if before the reality is part of creating the reality, right? Well, Paul says in, in, in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable and I read that and I think to myself, oh my goodness. <laughs> the suffering that I put myself through <laughs> and the laser focus I was able to produce to achieve that perishable crown. You know? Think about it. I mean, everybody's got a perishable crown that's important to us that we're chasing down. And think about the effort that you know, and the, the, the focus that we're that we're able to put into getting that perishable crown, and yet Paul says, "Look, the Christian life—it's not about a perishable crown that's going to be temporary. It's going to go away, no matter what it is. No matter what it is, it's going to be rusting in a junkyard in twenty or thirty years, or falling apart. We are." We are receiving, we have, our, we have received an imperishable crown. Uh, and that's what Paul's saying. Don't mistake that. He's not saying, uh, you know, you better get at it and work really hard so that you can earn that perishable crown. He's saying, we've received this. The perishable crown is ours. The Christian life, again, is not trying to be something we're not. It's living into what we already are in the Spirit. It's to live like what is already true of us. Jesus said at the end of this passage, and behold, I am with you always and to the end of the age. So Jesus is with us now. That's a promise. You know what he's talking about. He's talking about a doctrine we call the already and the not yet, right? There's things about the new creation there's things about the new kingdom, the kingdom of God that are already true, that are already here and present, right? In, in Ephesians 1.14, Paul says that we have received the Spirit as a guarantee. And that word guarantee, it's the word for, it's a, it's a, it's a word that means down payment. It's the idea that God has like given us the down payment 
as a as a as a as a surety, uh, as an act of as as like proof that he's going to complete the book, complete the transaction. God who cannot lie, God who cannot renege, God who cannot do any of those things has given us the Spirit, and the Spirit is the down payment. It's the guarantee that what we have spiritually will soon one day be totality. We now have the Spirit within us. Jesus is with us. We are connected to the new creation through that Spirit. And someday soon, God is promising to bring that to fulfillment, right? And so when Jesus says, you know, I am with you always to the end of the age, does he mean, and that's it? End of the age? I'm out? Of course not. What is he doing? He's implying that there's another age. He's implying that in that age, it's going to be even fuller. His presence with us will not only be spiritual, but physical. We will be in the presence of the Lord. I... I don't even know what that's going to be like, man. The Bible, when the Bible starts talking about that, it starts using metaphor and analogy and word pictures and, and says straight up, we have no idea what it is we'll be like, but we'll be like him. We don't even know what that means. And so, no, he's implying there's this new age coming, the age of the spirit, the kingdom of heaven, and it's to that kingdom that we now owe our allegiance. It's to that kingdom that we're called to live for even now. You know, Paul, in the last verse, I'm going to read here in Philippians 3, Paul is talking about Christians who got caught up in the world and lost sight of the fact that they belong to a greater kingdom. You know, he says, he says this, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Think about Jesus meeting Paul on the road to Damascus. That's what we're talking about. Therefore, uh, he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, when I was going through that, when I was, my pastor encouraged me to act as if and to start sacrificing and work towards being the pastorate? Why was I able to make those sacrifices? Why was I able to have that laser focus? Why is anybody who does that? It's because the idea of, of achieving that reality is so great and so all-encompassing and so all-consuming. It's all you think about. It's all you want. You want to get to that point, right? What the Word is telling us is that we're already connected to that world. We're already connected to that spirit, and we should be filled with that same consuming desire to leave. I'm going to watch my mouth right now. This current dumpster fire behind and set our sights on the things above where Christ is, where our life is hidden with Christ. To be and to think about our citizenship in heaven. To realize that our people, most of our people are already with the Lord in heaven. That's where we belong. That's our reality. 
And that gives us the motivation, not just the motivation, but the, the, the consuming passion to know everything that Jesus said because all of his commands are about becoming that thing which we are. It's about becoming more like him, about living in the beauty of eternal quality life now, in the transforming of ourselves from, from what we used to be into what God has for us. Amen? to live every day for that day, you know? And so, shameless pitch, Sunday school, community groups. In a sermon, there's going to be some things about that, but we are gonna, we keep our sermons pretty justification-centered for the most part, right? <clears throat> we focus on Jesus' work for us, his completed work for us, so that we, in the Sunday sermon, when Christ is meeting us through the Spirit. This is for us to be refreshed, to be restored, to be renewed, to remember that we belong to Jesus and that whatever chaos we're involved in in the world is secondary, like way secondary to the reality of who we are in Christ. And so we focus on that here on Sunday. This is God's uh, reaffirming his promise to you. And that's what our sermons are about. Which means that we have other avenues to do that teaching all that God has commanded us. Sunday school, community groups is how we pull that off. Uh, it's how we do that. It's how most churches do it. And that is a road to full orb discipleship. Are you worshiping on Sunday? Do you attend Sunday school? Engage in a small group? Are you in some way engaged in the mission of the church? If you can do all the, if you're doing all those things, you can say, I am an active disciple of the Lord Jesus. And I am pursuing with an all-consuming passion that day. Well, one day we will wake up uh, into a reality that's more beautiful than we can even imagine. Amen? Okay, let's end there. Father, we thank you for your, your word and the vision it gives us. Lord, it's almost silly when we clear our minds and step back a few paces and look at the silly things we trade in, the glory of uh, the new creation and our participation in it for, the things that we chase down and pursue and make so all-encompassing and all-important. And Lord, we know we all have responsibilities in the world those are outlined as part of the all you've commanded us. So we pray that you would help us to do that, Lord, to participate in the world, to be good citizens of the, of the country that we belong to and good parents and employees or employers. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to hold those things in the right place so that our ultimate allegiance and our ultimate affection would be for you and for your kingdom and so that we might live in such a way that people actually believe that we believe what we say. And we trust that you will work in and through that to expand the kingdom of God and to fulfill the mission of the church through us, Lord. And we pray, as always, that you would bless us to see a thousand people come to faith in your name through our ministry. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand?